Wonderful. Thank you. So take your Bible, if you would, this morning and turn to the book of Matthew 26. Matthew 26 in the Word of God. Thank you for the good music, good singing this morning. Sweet spirit, what a blessing to be here at Temple Baptist Church. I'm so glad that you're here. And as you're turning, I want to encourage you to do your part to be in every single service. I want to second what Pastor has said and emphasize and echo what I said in the Sunday school hour. To do everything you can to be here is our high priority. And I want you to be in every service. I want you to try to get someone here to every service. I'm going to do my part. I turned the corner this morning and I said, this is wonderful. The church is right next to Wawa. That is wonderful right here. I'm telling you, some good coffee. This is good. So you've got a lot of, lot of things to draw people here. And uh, I bet not very many churches are right next to Wawa. But here we are, and uh, that's a great thing. So let me encourage you to be in every service and be seeking the Lord. I want to encourage you this week to be praying about an hour and a half or so before the service starts. Just, just kind of mark it down. If you need to set an alarm, do that. But about an hour and a half before the service starts, just, just you're going to be getting off of traffic and instead of getting all mad and cutting people off and shaking your fist at them, just start praying. And uh, ask the Lord to help you as you uh, start to get your mindset geared up. You know, they talk about professional athletes that they got to get their game face on. And I do try to get alone about an hour or so before the service so that I can get my mind in gear. But boy, wouldn't it be a blessing if we all do that at the same time? We say, Lord, speak to us. Do a work. Let loose the captives and set the captives free and, and mend marriages this week. And we just all, in, we don't have to be all in the same place to be praying at the same time. And it would be a wonderful thing if just a choir of prayer emanated from this part of Virginia up before the Lord. About an hour and a half or two before the service starts, Lord, speak to us. Lord, speak to our hearts. And Lord, uh, do a work that only you can do and do what's needed. Do what's needed in our heart. Our God is a, a, our God is a practical God. And he's not just wanting to give us something that's a pie in the sky, kind of an ethereal feeling. I'll talk some about that this week, but he's wanting, he's wanting to meet our need. And how is that even possible? How is it even possible? If you stop to really consider the needs of every single person, man, woman, boy, girl, in this place, teenagers, middle age, adults, teenagers, uh, those that are in their elderly years, those that are just starting off, people that have just been saved, people that are barely, uh, barely new believers, some that aren't saved yet, how is it possible? How is that even possible to meet every spiritual need? Well, it's not with man, but with God it is. And with his word, it is possible. And that's what we need to be praying. Lord, only you can meet our needs and meet us right where we're at and speak to our hearts. And I believe this, that if we're praying an hour and a half, two hours before the service, together, collectively, from the different places where we're all coming and then converging here, we're going to have a wonderful meeting. It won't just be a wide spot on the calendar. It'll be something memorable. It'll be something that we can look back to. And that's what I'm aiming for and praying for, something that we can look back for years to, from years years from this moment and say God did something in that meeting in that heart in my heart and in my kids heart some of you are praying for your kids wouldn't it be something if God just got a hold of their hearts this week and I believe that he can only he can meet the need let's pray right now Lord thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you thank you for the emphasis this morning upon the cross and thank you that our lives boiled down are really nothing more than that nothing more than a, a, a sounding board and a reflection light and glass to point people to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ we Paul said it so eloquently God forbid that I should glory save in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, as we point folks to the cross, that our hearts would be in tune and warmed and stirred once again, and in a deep way, in a, in a memorable way, in a long-lasting way, so that for months and years to come, people would be able to point back at this service and say, God met me there and then and changed me. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for what you accomplished, because we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. J. Christopher White was an outdoor enthusiast. He was a rock climber and a, a kayaker, and he loved the outdoors, and he lived out west. And he happened to be in a kayak in the Colorado River. Now, all of his life, he had loved the outdoors, but particularly now that he was a, a man and had opportunity to go where he wanted and when he wanted. And, and he had studied different religions, but he basically came to the conclusion that they're all the same, that they're, they're really just different, uh, different paths that lead to the same place, and, and really not any, any, there's really not any difference between them. Well, he was on the Colorado River with his kayak, kayaking, kayaking down through the rapids, and as he was going along, he hit some, uh, some especially difficult rapids, and his kayak capsized. Now, this had happened before, and he knew what to do and how to maneuver his, his body weight and how to maneuver his paddle so that he could uh, right the kayak, but nothing he did worked. In fact, he tried it again, and it didn't work. Now he's under the current, and he is in grave danger, and the window of opportunity to fix this problem is shrinking and closing fast. And so he tries again in one last ditch effort, and it doesn't seem to work. And nothing that he does and nothing that he's trained to do seems to right this kayak and correct this situation. So in desperation, he cries out for some help. And he said, Buddha, save me. Nothing. Still all the while, he's trying to maneuver his weight and maneuver his paddle so that he can correct this problem, and it doesn't seem to work. So he cries out, Allah save me. Nothing. Now his window is almost shut, and he knows that if it doesn't fix it quick, he's going to be in desperate situation, in a desperate situation. So he cries out, and he says, Jesus, save me. And the kayak righted. When he got done with that kayak trip, and he got off to the bank, he said to himself, whoever this Jesus is, I want to know. And he found Jesus Christ to be not only someone who would rescue him from death in the Colorado River, but someone who would rescue him from eternal damnation in hell. And he cried out to the Lord Jesus to save him. He is a woodcarver that lives in Denver, Colorado now, does incredible sculptures with all kinds of wood, and he is a poem, poet. He writes poetry, often to match his carving, all to point to the amazing power and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he decided to do with Jesus determined his destiny. And this morning, I want to ask you what you will do with Jesus. I want to ask you that question this morning and show you five individuals that did something with the Lord Jesus. Would you notice our text as the Bible unfolds, Matthew chapter 26? I want to preach to you on the subject, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus. Please notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26 and verse number 47. 
Matthew 26 and verse 47, the Bible says, And while he yet spake low, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now here is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas Iscariot, who had followed Jesus for three and a half years. Judas Iscariot, who is now betraying the Son of God. Judas Iscariot, who heard Jesus, who knew how tall he was, who knew his voice, who saw his miraculous touch. Judas Iscariot, who was more intimately and physically in ways and observation familiar with Jesus than anyone in this room. And yet, he rejected him. Judas Iscariot represents the fool who rejects Jesus. Now, Judas Iscariot knew everything about him. He had followed Jesus, and he had worked for Jesus, and he had, he had devoted three and a half years of his life to Jesus. He knew what I have not known, how, how Jesus spoke, what Jesus did. He knew his patterns when he went up to the mountain and when he went down to the sea. He knew his ability. He saw him walk on water and have power over the elements. He saw him cast out demons and have power over the supernatural. He saw him raise the dead and have power over death and, and miraculously bring people back whole and have power over disease. And, and, yet, and yet Judas Iscariot rejected Jesus? It's almost stunning. It's almost shocking that it would be but Judas Iscariot represents the fool who rejects Jesus. He knew whether Jesus was a bass or a tenor. I personally believe he was a tenor. Right, Brother Scott? A anyway, uh, I, he, knew what, he knew what you and I don't know. How tall do you think Jesus was? I, I just have to believe he was about this tall. A and, uh, you, you know, he knew about Jesus what none of us have experienced physically, and yet he still rejected him. Uh, the maxim is mostly true, everything rises and falls on leadership, but it didn't hold true in that particular case. Judas Iscariot had perfect leadership, and yet he rejected that leadership. There was nothing wrong with Judas Iscariot's leadership. There was nothing wrong with the teaching that Judas Iscariot was getting. Uh, Judas Iscariot couldn't leave this congregation and say, I'm not being fed. No, no. No, he, is, he has everything that anybody could want as far as time and discipleship and mentorship and truth. He has no excuses, and yet he still rejected Jesus. Some of you here today are rejecting Jesus. Maybe someone listening by way of live stream is rejecting Jesus. And only a fool boiled down would reject Jesus. Only a fool 
would reject Jesus. Our problem isn't so much with doubt. And we need someone to dispel our doubts. And we need an apologist to get up and explain all the details and the wherefores and the whys and the hows of creation and the wherefores and whys and the hows of the Bible. No, no, no. Our problem isn't so much with doubt. Our problem is with out and out rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is Judas Iscariot's problem. Judas Iscariot is rebelling against the king of kings. Notice the scripture says in, verse, in the early part of this text, verse number 14, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him, covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot was the treasurer. It says in the early part of this text of Scripture that he despised the gift that Mary was offering the Lord Jesus when she broke a box of ointment. Do you know how much that was worth? 300 denarii. An average man or a common soldier's yearly wage. 300 denarii. Now Judas Iscariot goes to the Pharisees and covenants covenants with them for 30 pieces of silver. He'll betray the Son of God. 30 pieces of silver. Mary was looking for what she could heap upon Jesus. Mary was looking for what she could give to Jesus. Judas was looking for what what he could get from Jesus. How he could betray Jesus. Do you know how much 30 pieces of silver is worth? About two months' salary. So while she, a woman, was either willing to save or take from her treasury and her own savings an average man's working salary for a year, what would that be today? Well, it depends on where you're at. could be 60000 could be 100000 depend on where you're at. An average man's working salary, and Judas is willing to sell him out for two months' salary? 30 pieces of silver? What a crook. You see, Judas is seeing what he can get. Mary is looking to see what she can give. And the scripture tells us that he betrayed him with a kiss. I I know of some people that have betrayed him with less. And I know of some people that have sold him out for less than two months' salary. Here Judas Iscariot kisses the door to heaven and steps straight into hell. And when he kissed the Lord Jesus in verse number 49, the scripture says Jesus looked at him and said, Friend, why have you come? At the very end of Judas and his life, at the very end when he was betraying the Son of God, Jesus still referred to him as friend. I think he was leaving the door open for Judas to bail out at the very last. But here, the damage had already been done. And the scripture tells us in Matthew 27 what happened in verse number 3 of Matthew 27. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Let me say something to you. If you reject Jesus Christ, and by the way, not everybody rejects him in a hostile way. Not everybody sells him out like Judas Iscariot. Not everybody kisses the door of heaven and walks straight into hell. Sometimes people reject him with a curse and with an oath. But sometimes people reject him kindly and with a smile, with a little congeniality, with a little handshake. Either way, it takes you to the same place. 
And Judas Iscariot knew he was headed to that place called hell. And the scripture says in Matthew 27 that he realized what he'd done and that Jesus was condemned. And he said, uh, that the Bible says he repented himself. That means he was sorry about it, but it doesn't mean he was right with God. It doesn't mean true godly repentance. It doesn't mean that he was really wanting to be right with the Lord. It says he repented himself and brought, him again, brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. So you think about it. He didn't even have the pieces of silver. He only had the, the, those 30 pieces of silver for a few verses only for a few hours he didn't even have a chance to run down to Marshall's he didn't have these pieces of silver for any length of time and they didn't get him anywhere in life they didn't get him further ahead in life what was he going to do with those 30 pieces of silver anyway was he going to mint them put them under glass what was he going to do for 30 pieces of silver go down and buy something 30 pieces of silver only get you ahead. And by the way, the, 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 the Pharisees were looking to get out for as little as they could. They were looking to get Jesus. Everybody's looking to get, 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 get here. And Judas Iscariot realizes that he's in a bad way. And he comes in verse 4 and says in chapter 37, 4, I have sinned. Well, I'm glad that he recognized it, but it was too little too late. I have sinned in that I betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood, as if they cared about the law at all anyway. Verse 7, and they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Acts tells us it's the field called Akeldama. Verse number 9, that was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. You see, what happened with Judas Iscariot rejected Jesus is nothing good. And some of you think that you're too busy to accept Jesus now. Or some of you think you've got your own religion, so it contradicts Jesus. So why would you accept Jesus now? So you reject him. Some of you think, well, I I've, got, I I've got a lot of other things that I want to do before I accept Jesus. So you reject him because of time's sake. Some of you ha have rejected him because you've just got your own stubborn way. It all boils down to one word, rebellion. It all boils down to one word, rejection. And it all leads to the same place, hell. And only a fool would reject Jesus Christ. If you have never by faith come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I am a lost sinner and I plead guilty before your judgment bar and I need a Savior and I want you to save me, you alone can save me and cried out to him for mercy, you need to do that today. You need to turn away from rejecting him. You see, the opposite of rejecting him is receiving him. In John 1, 11 and 12, it says, Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name today if you will believe on Jesus today if you will accept his gift of eternal life by faith even though you can't see him and touch him and hear his voice physically and audibly the word of God is ringing loud and true and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart don't reject him don't turn him away don't 
Don't, don't spurn His grace. Don't close the door to His kindness and His mercy. Accept His gift of eternal life, and you can do it today. In fact, it is so important that you do it that it wouldn't bother any of us here that know Christ. If you raised your hand in the middle of the service, interrupted us all, and said, I need Jesus, we'd help you to Jesus on the spot. It's that important. Now, if you want this morning, you can be like Judas Iscariot, who represents the fool that rejects Jesus. But notice, please, what the Bible says in chapter 26 and verse 57. It says, And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming at the clouds in, the, in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now, if you want, you can be like Judas Iscariot. He represents the fool that rejects Jesus. Or you can be like Caiaphas. And Caiaphas represents religion that scorns Jesus. Now, religion is scorning Jesus here in this passage of Scripture, and it is stunning to see their arrogance. In verse 59, it says, The chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus, false witness against Jesus to put him to death. So they weren't even from the very get-go basing their arguments on the truth. This was a kangaroo tr court. This was a witch hunt to, to, to beat all. It was coming against Jesus with no evidence and no real jurisprudence and no good justice. That was all fallen in the streets. And the scripture here says that when they came against Jesus, they sought false witnesses. It's likely they just like they paid Judas off, they would pay their false witnesses off. Always follow the money. And, and the Bible says that they couldn't find any. They couldn't even find false witnesses. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last, they came to, came two false witnesses. And these two false witnesses accused Jesus of saying that he would destroy this temple and in three days he would build it up. Boy, they sure didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, did they? Jesus was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about this physical temple. Stephen made that clear in Acts chapter 7. He said uh, that the Lord dwells not in temples made with hands, that his heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. It, the Lord's hand has made all of this, and yet they didn't see it. They didn't see it then. They killed Stephen then. 
And they were so in love with the physical brick and mortar of the temple and so in love with the physical edifice of the temple that they forgot to see the God of the temple. And they forgot to hear the word of the temple. And they forgot to hear the prophecies of the temple. And they forgot to understand that Jesus Christ is not only the creator of the temple but the creator of everything. And they completely scorned him. And so what did they do? They brought false witnesses. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you don't win the argument or win the case, no matter whether a judge gives it in your favor or not, just because you have witnesses. And just because you have false witnesses. And just because you have many witnesses, you don't win. And so they said, uh, Caiaphas said, the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Verse 62 Jesus held his peace. The high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. You, you just take that phrase home and think about it this week. The high priest is speaking to the God of heaven, and he says, I adjure thee by the living God. I'm commanding you by the living God. He's looking at him. And then he says, uh, tell us whether these things are so. And Jesus said, thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his clothes, raises his voice. Uh, you don't win the case because you tear your clothes. You don't win the case because you raise your voice. You don't win the argument. But that was the way they won the argument. And they got everybody to cry, crucify him, crucify him. Do you know what this is? This is just a game of scorn. And that's what religion is still doing. It's what religion did all the way back in the garden or right after the garden with Cain scorning God's way and God's sacrifice. God's way is a bloody way. God's way is the death of a substitute. That's God's way and it's the only acceptable method of payment that God will take for your sin. And because we don't offer sacrifices now, and because we don't have priests now, we go through the Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest. And that is why we don't have priests and we don't have sacrifices now. Because this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you know that in the temple, that great, big, beautiful temple that Solomon built, in that great, big, beautiful temple, there was not one single chair do you know why there was not one single chair in the entire temple? Because the priest's work was never done. But when Jesus died on the cross and bled and shed his blood, he died, was buried and rose, and he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. While he was on the cross, he cried, to Telestai, it is finished. What was finished? Salvation's payment was finished. The work of God was finished. God was satisfied. That was what was finished. And that's why he alone has the authority to sit down at the right hand of the Father because he finished the work. He didn't say, it is almost finished. You do the work. It is nearly finished. You just got a few more prayers to pray. It is nearly finished. You just got a holy pilgrimage to take. It is almost finished. If you could just get dunked or poured or squirted or dipped or sprinkled or whatever it is you do if you it's almost finished but if you wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind praying uh, praying the rosary a little bit more no 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 he said 
It is finished. Salvation's work is complete. We do not believe in a pay-as-you-go salvation or a pay-ahead-of-time salvation or a you uh, pay-after-the-fact salvation, debit, credit, or IOU. We believe in a paid-in-full salvation, and it was paid for on the cross. Jesus paid for it in full. But you see, religion scorns all of that. That, that smacks against the arrogance of religion and the self-sufficiency of religion and the haughtiness of religion and the, uh, the, the appeal to man's intellect of religion. And it scorns the cross and scorns Jesus. If you want, you can go out on your way to hell just like Caiaphas was, scorning Jesus. I've got my own way. It's my family way. We've been doing this for years. I have to keep it in the family. No, you, you, don't, you keep it in the family, and then you're going to go straight to hell? Why, why? That doesn't make any sense. Now watch. I want you to see it. I want you to see that you can be like Judas Iscariot who rejects Jesus, the fool who rejects Jesus, or you can be like Caiaphas. He is religion that scorns Jesus. Or Look what the Bible says here in this passage of Scripture in verse number 59. In verse number 58, excuse me, it says, Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Notice, please, what the Bible says in verse number, 50, verse number 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wist with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were, with, that were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto them that stood by, they that stood by, and said to Peter, surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. Notice the last phrase of verse 74, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus which said unto him, Before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is Peter who walked on the water. This is Peter who saw Jesus do miracles. This is Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This same Peter was the one who in arrogance and in self-sufficiency said, all may forsake thee, but I will never forsake thee. This is the same Peter who couldn't tarry with Jesus in prayer for an hour. This is the same Peter who unsheathed his sword a few verses earlier and tried to take matters into his own hand and solve a spiritual problem with a fleshly weapon. And now Peter is just watching to see how it all plays out. Watching from a distance. You know, that's, that's why we need revival. Because of this thing called distance. That's why we need revival, because of this thing called drift. I don't imagine that Peter ever thought he'd drift this far from Jesus to you. I don't imagine that, that Peter would ever drift this far from Jesus. I can't imagine that. How did he get this far from Jesus? So that he's denying Christ? He just watched Jesus wash his feet hours earlier. He just watched Jesus as he, as he gave the, the bread and the, the, the juice to commemorate his death. 
He just was there with Jesus and swore allegiance to Jesus. And now he's denying, I know not the man. I don't, I don't know who he is. And then to cover his tracks, he cursed and he swore. Peter represents the carnal Christian who denies Jesus. One of the great problems that I have with carnality in my own life and that of others is that it denies the cross. It's ashamed of the cross. It's ashamed of the reproach of the cross. Look here, the cross is something that people hang around their necks. Some of you probably are, have right now a pendant of the cross hanging around your neck. It's something that the ladies wear around their, their wrists. It's something that, that we wear as a symbol. It's beautiful. It's, it's memorable. It wasn't that day. It was rugged and cruel and vile and threatening and foreboding. And there was a reproach. So when Jesus said, if any man will come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and his brothers and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever he be of you that, take a, that, that, that does not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Take up my cross. What? The cross that the Romans used to execute their enemies? The cross that they would use as a, to send a message to all those that were daring to rise up against Rome? Take up my cross. Yes, you see, following Christ has a reproach. We're not talking here about trusting Christ. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about discipleship and following Christ. It has a cost. And I found this in my Christian life, that there are a lot of people that are just simply ashamed of the reproach of the cross. They don't want to embrace it. They don't want to own it. They're ashamed of it. Following Christ means I have to give up me. Following Christ means I have to die. Following Christ means I'll go to the end. Following Christ means shame and reproach and, and the scorn of religion. If I follow Christ, it means I may go to the cross. And Peter was weighing that. Am I willing to go to the cross? No, 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 I don't know the man. No, 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 he's not me and I'm not him. No, 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 no. And then to cover his tracks, he curses and swears. And then the formidable... Now, I don't know who lives where in this part of the world. I came to Brandon's this morning, and I wasn't really sure that Brother Lawrence actually had an address. I was thinking maybe down all these dark valley Virginia roads, he'd give me a false address, and he was waiting to murder me and bury me in a shallow grave, you know, uh, coming down the road this morning. But, but uh, I don't know who lives where, and I don't know who has chickens. Is there anybody here that has chickens? Anybody here? Oh, okay, we got a few country folk. We have chickens. Now, please don't ask me after the service what an evangelist has chickens for. Uh, several years ago, my son Peter thought it'd be a good idea if we got chickens or we'd get little eggs and, and, and little chicks for Easter and so we could get pictures. And so we got little eggs and chicks for Easter and we got pictures and then we said, now what? <laughs> I have no idea why we got chickens. I, I have really no idea. I call them my devil birds. But, but uh, we had to take care of making sure we had enough food for them yesterday on our way home, on our way up here to Virginia. And, and so we have these chickens. And, and uh, my, I've got lots of stories. I was in Massachusetts. I was pounding down some uh, stakes. I was putting out some uh, fence around my trailer. And the pastor said, what are you doing? I said, I'm building my chicken coop. And so anyway, I don't have any idea why I had chickens. We had them in a little box 
box at first, and then a little bigger box, and they got out in the trailer. That wasn't good. And then we, had, uh, then we put them outside. So don't, please don't ask me. I don't know why we have chickens, but we have chickens. And I always thought that roosters crowed in the morning to wake everybody up like an alarm clock. You know, That's when they crow to wake everybody up. That's not true. It's not true. They crow when there's movement. They crow when their routine is disrupted. They crow at some of the oddest times. And I have chickens in a neighborhood, so what in the world are you crowing right now for? You're going to wake up the neighborhood. What is wrong with you chickens? Don't you know when to wake up and when to crow and when not to crow? Don't you imagine that every time a rooster crowed from this point forward, Peter would, in his mind, go back to this passage? It was a constant reminder of Peter's weakness, of his flesh. How could he have gone so far, so fast, away from Christ, whom he loved? Do you think Peter didn't love Jesus? Peter questioned it at the end of John chapter 20. Lovest thou me? Jesus asked. Peter knew that he wasn't all that he thought he was. And every time he heard the rooster, he thought of it. That shameful moment when he denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times with cursing. I want to say that if you're a Christian that's compromising or you're a Christian that's allowing carnality to sweep you away in a current from Christ, you better stop and change course right now. You better throw your anchor around Jesus before it gets to a place where you would be so ashamed for generations to come. I wonder how Peter exposited Matthew 26 from this point forward. I wonder what he thought of when he read this from this point forward. I'm sure he wasn't happy. There's not one moment of carnality that Dwight Smith has ever indulged in that I'm proud of that I look at it with anything but regret. That carnality happens one little step at a time. Look quickly at Matthew 27. I want to draw your attention to verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had found him, they bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. Verse number 11, and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word in so much that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they, they, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For they, he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. The but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I then do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? 
They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? In another passage, he says, I find no fault in him. I want to say, Neither do I. Notice what it says in verse 23. But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that, that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. Well, he thought he could get away that easy. You see, Pilate represents the politician who dismisses Jesus. Judas is the fool that rejects Jesus. Caiaphas is religion that scorns Jesus. Peter is the carnal Christian that denies Jesus. And Pilate is the politician that dismisses Jesus. And by politician, I don't mean somebody who is running for or who holds public office. I know a lot of politicians that have never been in public office. They don't know which side of the issue to stand on. They say, some of my friends say one thing, and some of my friends say another. I stand with my friends. They can't choose between right or wrong. To them, life is just one big gray. There's no difference between good or evil. No good difference between righteousness or unrighteousness. And they just try to blend in. And that's Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? I was walking in the belly of the Atlanta airport going from one tram to the next and there were two pilots walking right next to me and this is what one pilot said. He said he was standing there staring truth in the face and he asked him, what is truth? I said, you go, pilot. <laughs> he was witnessing to one of his co-pilots. You see, he was pointing to Pilate. Pilate, no pun intended, Pilate the governor, who had no intention of believing on Jesus. He just wanted to be free from this political mess. He just wanted to be free from this momentary tumult. He wanted to dismiss Jesus. And so because he couldn't dismiss, he couldn't get Jesus off by, by crucifying Barabbas, he, 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 he couldn't please the Jews. He, he knew he was going to be in trouble with the, the higher-ups in the Roman echelon and empire. He, he said, I release him to you. And he called for a basin of water and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Can I break something to you? You're not innocent because you declare you're innocent. You are innocent based upon what you do or don't do with Jesus Christ. You're innocent or guilty. You're not the one that gets to declare, I am innocent, and all of a sudden you're off. A murderer, a, a, a thief, doesn't get to go before a judge and say, I am innocent. That's not the way this works. The Bible says we're guilty before a holy God, and what Pilate should have said is, I am a guilty sinner, and I plead before you, Lord Jesus, to save me. But he didn't. He tried to wash the spots of Jesus' blood from his hands and from the bosom of hell. 2,000 years later, he's still in trying to expunge the spots from, the, from his hands. I am innocent. I am innocent, I say. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. He claimed that Jesus was just, but he declared that he was innocent. That's not what gets you to heaven. Quickly and finally, I want you to see one final portion. Notice Matthew 27. I draw your attention towards the latter part, verse number 50. Matthew 27 and verse number 50. It says, Jesus, when he had cried 
again with a loud voice yielded up the ghost. Watch what happens. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the grave after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those things which, that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. If you want this morning, you can be like Judas, who is the fool that rejects Jesus. If you want, you can be like uh, like Caiaphas, religion that scorns Jesus. If you want, you can be like, like Peter, the carnal Christian that denies Jesus. Or you can be like Pilate, the politician that dismisses Jesus. But I would beckon to every single person here to be like this centurion who is the wise man that receives Jesus. He said when he saw Jesus and he saw the earthquake and he heard the rocks rending, he realized this was unlike any other crucifixion. And this Roman centurion was an expert at it. He had crucified many before and he had seen many cru cru crucifixions and seen many men die on the cross cursing and blaspheming as they go. But now from the lips of Jesus he hears, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He hears love and compassion for his mother. He hears love and compassion for those that are accusing him and murdering him, unlike any other one that had ever died before. And when he saw who Jesus was and realized these things that took place, the rocks rent beneath the cross and perhaps the world over, the, earth, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, the bodies of them which had died arose and were walking around Jerusalem. When these things happened, he realized this was unlike anything else. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Is there anybody here today that will say that very thing? Truly, this was the Son of God. I ask you this morning, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth this sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried? Or will you choose him whatever betide? Vainly you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? Will you like Peter your Lord deny? Or will you scorn from his foes to fly? Daring for Jesus to live or to die. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus, I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way. Gladly obeying thee will I say, this will I do with Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer? I want to thank you for your kind attention to the word of God. I wonder with your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you'd say, Brother Smith. I know that I'm on my way to heaven and I'm sure that I'm saved but as you preached this morning God's spirit spoke, spoke to my heart about some area or another where I've been false to him where I've been carnal where I've not been right with him would you pray for me I don't want to like Peter deny my Lord or go any further away from him I want to come back to him today if that's you would you slip up your hand right now God bless you Praise the Lord. Anyone else along with these? Slip up your hand. Put it right back down. Thank you. Question number two. How many of you would say, Brother Dwight, there are some things I'm unsure of, but there's one thing I know.
If I died today, I know that I'd go to heaven. I'm not hoping or wishing or trying to make it. I know that I've been saved. I know that I'm on my way to heaven. There's been a time and a place when I've received God's gift of eternal life, and I'm not wishing to go to heaven. I know that I'd go. If you can say that honestly, would you slip your hand up high, preacher? I know that I'm on my way to heaven. There's no doubt here. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Now, I don't know everyone here, and I couldn't see everyone here, but I'd like to ask if there's anyone here that's a preacher, I couldn't raise my hand just now. I'm not sure if I died today that I'd go to heaven, but I sure want to be sure. I'd like to know, would you pray for me? I'd like to get this settled. Yes, I will. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand and put it right back down? In a moment, I'll remember you in prayer. Thank you. Is there someone else? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know, but I want to know. All right? Is there anyone else? Preacher, please pray for me. I don't know, but I want to know. Is there anyone else? Preacher, please pray for me. I'd like to know for sure that my sins are forgiven and that my home is heaven when I die. All right, if you just raised your hand, I want you to listen to me. In a moment, we're going to stand. And I'm going to point to the pianist. She's going to give us a chord, and we're going to sing just as I am. If you raised your hand just now and said, Preacher, I don't know that I'm going to heaven. At that moment, I want to encourage you to come. Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's never been a person anywhere in the history of the world that's genuinely come to Christ by faith and been turned away. So when I get done praying for you, as I promised, the pianist will begin to play. And I want to encourage you at that moment to come. Take Pastor by the hand and say, Pastor, I don't know that I'm going to heaven, but I want to know and I need to know. And we'll have someone help you to Jesus. It's that important that you get it settled today. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Now, Father, we give this to you. We thank you for the examples that you've given us in the New Testament this morning. Help us, Lord, not to be like Judas or Caiaphas or Pilate. Help us, Lord, not to be like Peter in denying you. Help us to be like this centurion who receives you. And I pray for these that need to be saved. Help them to come right now without delay and get this matter settled. And help every one of us as Christians to come to you again and afresh and anew give ourselves fully to thee. In Jesus' name we pray.